the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are verses 5 through 11 of Psalm 16, which along with Psalm 17 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, January the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing to look at the um, Messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. We're also in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. In today's uh, look at the Isaiah passages, we're looking at Isaiah 42, uh, verses 1 to 17, and this is the the beginning of the passage about the suffering servant that um, we believe is the... uh, probably the best passage to understand Jesus and the message of Jesus, as opposed to this messianic king idea. So what we've got here is, Behold my servant, who I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And so we know that, that God speaks on, on several different occasions concerning Jesus, not the least of which is when he speaks at the baptism of Jesus and said, Behold my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then again at the transfiguration when he says similar kinds of things, and he says, My beloved son, listen to him. He says, I've put my servant a spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But Jesus said that his mission was to the lost sheep of Israel. And it was. <laughs> and that's where the mission began. That's specifically who, to whom Jesus was sent for the very simple reason that the Jews are God's people. They were the only people on earth with whom he had a covenant relationship. And so he has to go to them because the the goal and the plan always was for them to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests serving God. And so Jesus came to say, here's your opportunity. Here's your opportunity to repent and to receive me and for my kingdom to come on the earth, but his own knew him not. So he comes there, but his mission is to the nations, even if they receive him. Even if the Jewish people received him when he came, the mission would have been larger than that. The mission would have been to the nations. They would have been a witness to the nations. All of this would have been a mission to the nations. So the the goal always was to incorporate all flesh, all those created in the image of God. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In other words, the the way that he's going to come into the world and go about the mission is not with loud fanfare and not like a king might come. And he's going to be gentle. Those who are bruised and broken, he will deal gently with. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He's the God of all creation. I'm the Lord. 
I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So here what we see is is that, that he is a light for the nations, and it's exactly what's said of him by Simeon when he was brought to the temple on the eighth day for his dedication and circumcision. He's brought there, and Simeon says, you are a light to, the, uh, to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of my people Israel. And so he, he sees, Simeon does, that there's more to Jesus than that, but he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so he quotes it specifically there. And, and God says, I won't give my glory to another. Well, this is God. It's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is. And so he's not giving his glory to another. He's sharing it with himself in this way. And we see that very same reality in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. First, where all the glory and the honor is ascribed to the one seated on the throne. And then that same praise is directed to the Lamb looking like it was slain who has appeared before the throne going on here, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And that's what God always did. He does nothing, he says, without revealing it first to his prophets. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. And the new song is that song of Revelation 5 that's sung by those who are around the throne. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. And again, it's a landlocked nation, and so this is other nations that he's speaking of. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. These are all foreign powers who are rejoicing in the coming of God. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I'll turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So what God's saying is is that those who are blind, those who do not know him, those who walk in darkness will be given light, and they'll walk in paths they do not know, and those paths will not be rough. They will be smooth and level ground. And it's exactly what Jesus did. He paved the way to the Father. He showed us the way to the Father, which is exactly what he says that he is going to do. In the book of John, particularly at the Last Supper, he says exactly those things. It's interesting. I've been reading more and and listening more to Michael Heiser talk about some of these issues, and and it it has to do with these principalities and powers, these gods, quote-unquote, who reign in these places because the people ascribe power to these false deities. But those false deities are spiritual powers, 
And they do have power, but their power is circumscribed in the same way that, that the Satan's powers over Job were circumscribed by God. He allows that power for this time. But ultimately, he will come and he will judge all the nations, and he'll judge the gods of the nations just as he judged Egypt's gods, just as he judged, judged Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It's the, the, the point is, is that there are principalities and powers and kingdoms and authorities and rulers. Satan told Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, then you can have all the earthly powers, which would imply that they're his to give. And so here we see that same thing, that these are the things I do. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols and who say to metal images, you are our gods. Those gods has territories, and they're gods in the sense that they're bigger than us, but they're not gods compared to the one who created all things, and that's exactly what Isaiah told us. This is the God I'm talking about, is the one who created everything. And we hear that same thing. You'll hear it again in the Ephesians passage when we get there. For now, though, here we are. Now we're in Mark's gospel. He went out again beside the sea where he had called Matthew and Mark and uh, not Matthew, sorry. He had called uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. So he's back there, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he was moving on, he saw Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, just like those other four guys had. He left everything else behind. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. These tax collectors had come and began to follow him. These tax collectors typically would have been Jews who had basically cooperated with the enemy for financial gain and power and position, but they were despised by everybody. They were despised by the Romans, and they were despised by the Jews. So they were, they were not popular people, so they pretty much stuck together. And so it is odd, certainly, that Jesus is with these despised ones. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And, and every time I read it, I'm, I'm I'm thinking, the disciples here, this is a pretty new thing, you know? And, and, and I'm thinking, well, they're probably thinking, we'd like to know the same thing. We're not quite sure why we're hanging out with these guys. Because that doesn't make sense to us. But Jesus is spreading the kingdom, opening the kingdom to all who will receive it. And Matthew has proven he's willing to receive the kingdom and, and forsake everything and follow after and when Jesus heard it, that question of why he eats with tax collectors and sinners, he said to them, those who ate or who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Same message John was giving, right? It, which is to repent and be baptized. And so Jesus is calling sinners. And, and do they respond? Well, the, the answer is all of us are sinners. That's exactly Paul's point in Romans. Uh, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we think that we have got this righteousness or whether we, we know who we are. And so Jesus says, I came to call, not call the righteous, but sinners. And so that's the reason we're here today with these tax collectors and sinners. And John's disciples and the Pharisees at that time were fasting. And People came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
What are you fasting for? You're fasting for the coming of the Lord. You're, you're fasting in order that he would renew his covenant with his people. It, we're fasting because he told us to fast as we await his coming again. Jesus says, I'm here. The bridegroom is here. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. And that's something I personally need to consider. I, I need to regularly plan for fasting. I need to go beyond, I believe, Advent and Lent as times of fasting, and I need to, to extend that in other ways personally, and, and I'm recommending and commending that practice to you as well. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. So you've got to fit the patch to the application. So you can't just put a new patch on an old garment because when it does, when it shrinks, it'll tear it away. <clears throat> and then the worst tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins as it ferments and grows, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins that are made specifically for the wine that's going to be put into them. So Jesus is saying the former things have come New things are happening in in exactly the way that Isaiah said they would. Now into the um, Ephesians passage. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he is a, he's in prison in Rome when he writes this. This is what one of those what are called the prison epistles, the ones that he wrote from his imprisonment. He says, "I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you." In other words, I've been, I'm, I'm here where I am because I preach the gospel to you, and that gospel set you free, not the law. And so I preached this, and because I preached this to you and, and, and have said that you are in the covenant through the blood of Jesus, now I'm in prison for preaching that gospel. That's how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. In other words, I've I've written this other places that God made these mysteries known to me, and it's where he talks about being caught up into the third heaven, and these mysteries were made known to him. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it's it's a message that goes beyond just the, the eleven... It's, it's apostles and prophets through the Spirit who now know these things that have been revealed. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So they don't have to come into the Judaism. No, they're incorporated into this fellowship through the blood of Christ, period, end of sentence. And that's why I'm in prison, is because that's the gospel that I preached. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul acknowledges that the the grace given to me, the mission that I was given, was to preach to the Gentiles the glories of Christ. 
and to bring to light for everyone. And remember, that's a big theme of that Isaiah passage that we read just a couple of minutes ago. He is the light for the nations. To bring to light for everyone what's the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And remember, Isaiah points everything back to creation as well. And so we're talking about a very particular God, the God who created all things. And the Ephesians live in a place where there are many gods. There's a big Artemis temple there is a lot of Diana worship there. And so you get these sibyls who are the prophets of those, quote, gods. But Paul takes these things seriously, and he's taking them seriously in the light of spiritual warfare, because what he's saying is, I bring light for everyone. <clears throat> what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And so Paul says, I'm bringing that light to you. That light is Christ. It's the truth. You've been under a demonic deception, and now I'm bringing light so that you can see the truth about that deception and about the God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This is an interesting thing. Be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So somehow Paul's saying that what we do and what we preach in the church brings light actually to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places because what we're doing is we're proclaiming that they are no gods at all, and we know it. They've been exposed in our eyes as nothing compared to God. And so we're proclaiming that to the heavens that, that you have been dethroned and you've been dethroned in our eyes, and you're being dethroned in this place, and you will ultimately be completely dethroned. But in, in this time, we are a proclamation into the heavens about the truth and the glory of God over and against these demonic powers who have put people into darkness and bondage. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is preaching this powerful message that, that says that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy you read back in Isaiah, and, he is the, and that word goes forth into the heavens where God's glory, the glory of the one and only, is being proclaimed and revealed. And so that proclamation and that revelation by the church that praise and worship by the church that's given only to him is a statement and a declaration. There is only one God. And that one God, instead of being confined to the land of Israel and the people of Israel, is now spread to all the nations. It's being proclaimed into the heavens. And we're asking God to come in glory, bring his kingdom, defeat those powers of darkness by his glorious light all over the world and into the heavens.